Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Making Doctrine Out of Nothing at All. A lot has been said about Elder Oaks' conference talk a month ago in which he promoted the proclamation on the family from policy to revelation. Bill Reel has done an episode talking about that particular conference address, and Bill Reel and I did a separate podcast discussing the historical context of the creation of the proclamation on the family, showing that it was a political document that was created for political means to be used in a political fight in the courts in Hawaii over the issue of gay marriage. Tonight, I don't want to talk so much about what Elder Oaks had to say. Instead, I want to focus on the proclamation itself. And specifically, I want to focus on one sentence in the proclamation. Because even though the proclamation has been advertised as simply being a re-emphasis, a rehash, a restatement of what prophets have said throughout the history of the church and what prophets have said repeatedly, I have a suspicion that in this one sentence, the leaders of the church sneaked in to the proclamation entirely new doctrine with no or little scriptural support, and not only that, with little or no support from what prior prophets have said in the history of the church. First, I want to review a couple of statements that show how this proclamation has been portrayed as simply being a rehash of what has been said before. In Elder Oaks' general conference talk, he referred to this on a couple of occasions. He stated that the proclamation on the family, quote, is the Lord's re-emphasis of the gospel truths we need to sustain us through current challenges to the family, unquote. In another place, Elder Oak said, It was a surprise to some who thought the doctrinal truths about marriage and the family were well understood without restatement. President Hinckley underscored this point even more strongly when he introduced the proclamation on the family at the Women's Session of General Conference back in September of 1995. Here is what Elder Hinckley said. We of the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve Apostles now issue a proclamation to the Church and to the world as a declaration and reaffirmation of standards, doctrines, and practices relative to the family which the prophets, seers, and revelators of this Church have repeatedly stated throughout its history. So it seems clear that the proclamation has consistently been advertised as simply a reaffirmation of what prophets have been teaching throughout the history of the church. But is it really? Now, for the most part, this is true. Most of the proclamation on the family is stuff that we have heard over and over and over again, and we had heard it over and over and over again prior to 1995 when it was issued. But there is one sentence slipped into the family proclamation that does not seem to fall into this category. It does not appear in this one sentence to be doctrines that are simply a reaffirmation of standards, doctrines, and practices which the prophets, seers, and revelators of this church have repeatedly stated throughout its history. In fact, there is precious little in the standard works that would support this particular sentence. And not only that, there is precious little in the words of the prophets of the church throughout its history that would support this particular sentence. It occurs in the second paragraph of the proclamation, in the paragraph that begins, All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. That is not particularly controversial. Each is a beloved spirit son or daughter of heavenly parents, and as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. Again, not controversial, simply a re-emphasis. 
But now we come to the sentence that I have a question about. That sentence reads as follows. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual, premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. Let me read that once again. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual, premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. There is a lot packed into that one sentence. This sentence is composed of three separate doctrinal pronouncements, all related to gender being an essential characteristic of one, premortal, two, mortal, and three, eternal identity and purpose. This quote, not surprisingly, finds its way into Elder Oak's recent general conference talk, in which he refers to these concepts, among others, as not just doctrine and not just truth, but ups the ante to call them revelation. He says, in 1995, a president of the church and 14 other apostles of the Lord issued these important doctrinal statements. As we review each of these three doctrinal pronouncements, we will find that they are not simply, as President Hinckley said, a reaffirmation of standards, doctrines, and practices relative to the family which the prophet seers and revelators of this church have repeatedly stated throughout its history. And to the extent that these statements have not been repeatedly stated by prophets throughout the church's history, and to the extent they are not found in the scriptures, then we must ask the question, where do they come from? That is why the title of this podcast is Making Doctrine Out of Nothing at All. And, if these doctrines are created out of whole cloth as they appear to be, for the purpose of inserting them into the proclamation on the family, then we must ask the question why they were placed there. The first doctrinal statement in the sentence that we will consider is the one having to do with mortality. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual mortal identity and purpose. Now that statement on its face would seem largely true, at least to the extent that we are speaking of gender as sexual organs. But exceptions immediately appear to counter this blanket doctrinal statement. It is important to note that this doctrinal statement is set forth in absolutes. It does not allow for any exceptions to the rule. But exceptions immediately appear to counter this blanket doctrinal statement. What of hermaphrodites? That would be a counterexample. Hermaphrodites have sexual organs of both the male and the female. Are we able to say for them that gender is an essential characteristic of their individual mortal identity and purpose? And if so, which one, male or female? And if we can visibly discern that this doctrinal concept does not seem to apply to hermaphrodites, how can we be certain that the same kind of thing is not happening inside people where we cannot visibly detect it. This goes, among other things, to the issue of sexual identity. If God can goof up the birth process such that a person is born with sexual organs of both male and female, by the way, I'm using goof up not to be pejorative, but simply to look at it from the Orthodox Mormon point of view. Obviously, that would be a goof up in God's plan from that perspective. But if God can goof up the birth process such that a person is born with sexual organs of both male and female, how can we say God does not also goof up the birth process such that a male spirit is not put into a female body or vice versa? The very fact that we know such mistakes, and I'm using air quotes around the mistakes, the very fact that we know such mistakes happen with hermaphrodites leads us to conclude that it is likely similar mistakes happen with others. 
Now, here it's important to note the use of the word purpose in this sentence. Not only does it say that gender is an essential characteristic of individual mortal identity, it also says that gender is an essential characteristic of individual mortal identity and purpose. The use of this word purpose suggests this new doctrine was added to the family proclamation as a justification for opposition to homosexuality and specifically to gay marriage. Even though a homosexual's gender is part of their individual identity, it must be part of their purpose as well. And if they are not using their gender to procreate in a heterosexual union, they are running afoul of the purpose clause of the family proclamation. But leaving homosexuality to the side for now, what about all the faithful members of the church who never get married? Their gender may be part of their individual mortal identity, but is it part of their mortal purpose, as the family proclamation says, perhaps in theory, but not in reality. And so we have another class of people within Mormonism who seem to be placed outside this doctrinal statement in the family proclamation. You can probably think of additional examples. What this indicates is that this one clause, which was apparently written to exclude homosexuals from God's divine plan, ends up excluding other groups as well and some of them faithful members of the LDS Church. And if it ends up excluding faithful members of the Church, one is justified in questioning how accurate a doctrine it is. The second doctrinal pronouncement in this one sentence we will consider now is this. Gender is an essential characteristic of our eternal identity and purpose. Now this is just flat out wrong. No prophet, to my knowledge, has ever said that gender is an essential characteristic of our eternal identity and purpose, at least not for the vast majority of people who live on this earth, as the statement in the family proclamation would appear to indicate. The only people for whom gender will be part of eternal identity and purpose, according to Mormon doctrine, are those who are exalted in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. It is only there, according to the LDS Church, that spirits will be born by means of the sexual act between exalted men and women. None of the inhabitants of the other kingdoms will be able to procreate. That is reserved exclusively for this limited and exalted minority. And so to make a statement such as in the family proclamation that appears to apply to all people is misleading at best. It is certainly not doctrine within the Mormon framework. But in fact, it is worse than that. The idea that all of us will continue to have our gender in the eternities has been argued against by no less an authority than Joseph Fielding Smith. The problem is that Mormonism teaches that only those who are exalted will be able to procreate. And the Book of Mormon itself teaches that in the resurrection, every part of the human body will be restored to its perfect form so that not one hair shall be lost. Presumably that includes pubic hair, and presumably that includes the genitalia. The problem this raises in Mormon theology is what are all those people who are resurrected but are not exalted going to be doing with their male and female genders? Now, obviously, they cannot produce spirit children, but we cannot have a situation where all the inhabitants of the telestial and terrestrial kingdom are able to fornicate their brains out with impunity. No, something must be done. And Joseph Fielding Smith proposed a solution. What was his solution? Well, Joseph Fielding Smith's solution to prohibit fornication in the lower kingdoms was that gender, i.e. sex organs, would be removed 
from all those who are not exalted. I am quoting to you from Joseph Fielding Smith in Doctrines of Salvation, Volume 2, pages 287 through 288. Quote, In both of these kingdoms, i.e. the terrestrial and telestial, there will be changes in the bodies and limitations. They will not have the power of increase, neither the power or nature to live as husbands and wives. For this will be denied them, and they cannot increase. Those who receive the exaltation in the celestial kingdom will have the continuation of the seeds forever. They will live in the family relationship. In the terrestrial and in the telestial kingdoms, there will be no marriage. Those who enter there will remain separately and singly forever. Some of the functions in the celestial body will not appear in the terrestrial body, neither in the telestial body, and the power of procreation will be removed. I am continuing to quote from Joseph Fielding Smith. Here is the money quote. I take it that men and women will, in these kingdoms, be just what the so-called Christian world expects us all to be, neither man nor woman, merely immortal beings having received the resurrection, end of quote. The idea that Joseph Fielding Smith proposed of members of the telestial kingdom and terrestrial kingdom having their sexual organs removed has been referred to as the TK smoothie. The initials TK can stand for either telestial kingdom or terrestrial kingdom, so it does double duty here. And obviously, if the sex organs are removed, then nothing's going to be left but a smooth surface, hence the name TK smoothie. In fact, TK Smoothie has come to have not one, but two definitions. The first is the logical conclusion for Joseph Fielding Smith that people in the TK would not have male or female genitalia. And number two, which is an extrapolation of the TK Smoothie, if a doctrine of the church seems like it has been created in order to fix or explain another, it might be a TK Smoothie. The TK Smoothie is eponymous for all doctrines, that are probably bogus, but exist in order to clarify some other doctrine or speculation. And indeed, using the second definition of a TK smoothie as being eponymous for all doctrines that are probably bogus, but exist in order to clarify some other doctrine or speculation, I believe that that definition could apply to this entire sentence from the family proclamation we are analyzing tonight. So in concluding this section, not only is the doctrinal statement in the family proclamation that gender is an essential characteristic of individual eternal identity and purpose, not something that has been taught by prophets throughout the history of the church. This doctrinal statement has actually been argued against and contradicted by one of those prophets. It is not doctrine. It runs counter to doctrine. So what is it doing in the family proclamation? And who put it there? And for what reason? And how can we say it is now doctrine simply by virtue of its being made up and placed in that document. Again, the leaders of the church are making doctrine out of nothing at all. The third doctrinal pronouncement in this one sentence is that gender is an essential characteristic of individual premortal identity and purpose. This also is a remarkable statement, especially when you consider that our knowledge of the premortal existence is extremely limited because we can't remember it. Even Elder Oaks admits in his recent general conference talk, quote, In this mortal life we have no memory 
of what preceded our birth. Since we cannot remember the pre-mortal existence, our knowledge of what pertains to that pre-mortal life is pretty much limited to scriptural pronouncements. But where in the scriptures does it state that gender is an essential characteristic of our pre-mortal identity? A few arguments have been made, one of them being the statement in Genesis that man was created after the image of God. The question becomes, is the image of God in which man was created so detailed as to include genitalia? The scriptures do not say that explicitly. Another argument from the scriptures made in support of this that is made sometimes is the account of Jesus appearing to the brother of Jared in the Book of Mormon, Ether chapter 3, in which the pre-mortal Jesus says to the brother of Jared in verse 16, Behold, this body which ye now behold is the body of my spirit. And man have I created after the body of my spirit. And even as I appear unto thee to be in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. But again, does that necessarily include sex organs? Or perhaps is the finger of Jesus that is seen by the brother of Jared something other than a digit of his hand? And remember, the family proclamation says not only that gender is an essential characteristic of our premortal identity, it also says gender is an essential characteristic of our premortal purpose. But what purpose would be served by having sex organs in the premortal existence? Unless we have a doctrine, which to my knowledge we do not, that spirits are able to copulate and produce offspring, it would seem there is no purpose to spirits having sex organs. And yet, this is a doctrine placed in the family proclamation. Not only do the scriptures not teach this doctrine expressly, and at best the scriptures are equivocal on the subject, I am unable to locate a pattern of past prophets teaching this concept, unless we consider Lex de Azevedo a prophet. The closest I can come to finding a statement from a past leader of the church along these lines is from James Talmage. This quote is in a collection of articles by James Talmage published in the Latter-day Saints Millennial Star in 1922. In that publication, it can be found on page 539, but it appears to be earlier than that and actually seems to come from an article James Talmage wrote originally for the Young Women's Journal and which was published in that periodical in 1914. Elder Talmage, of course, was an apostle of the church at the time. Let me read this quote to you now, and if it sounds similar to the quote in the proclamation on the family, I think that is probably more than coincidence. Here's the quote. We affirm as reasonable, scriptural, and true the eternity of sex among the children of God. Now here, of course, he's talking about sex as used in terms of gender. The noun, not the verb. The distinction between male and female is no condition peculiar to the relatively brief period of mortal life. It was an essential characteristic. Did you hear that? Yes, that's what he said. It was an essential characteristic of our pre-existent condition, even as it shall continue after death, in both the disembodied and resurrected states. Note the identical language of essential characteristic, which raises the question of whether this publication is where the authors of the family proclamation got the idea from. Now, I've done some research on this, and I cannot look up every single publication that the LDS Church has had prior to 1995 that may or may not deal with this issue. What I can tell you is that based upon my research, I am unable to find any statement along these lines from any other church authority prior to the 1995 publication of the Family Proclamation. And of course, after 1995, you can find a plethora 
of statements by general authorities, quoting the family proclamation, to make this point. So as far as I can tell, this is the one statement that was made. Prior to the proclamation, it is a single statement made not by a prophet, but by an apostle. It is made in an obscure article, published in an obscure periodical, the Young Woman's Journal, a century ago. If this is the only mention of this idea by any church authority prior to 1995, does it fall under President Hinckley's definition? As we have reviewed each of these three doctrinal pronouncements in this one sentence in the Family Proclamation, it appears that they are not simply a reaffirmation, as President Hinckley said, they are not simply a reaffirmation of standards, doctrines, and practices which the prophets, seers, and revelators of this church have repeatedly stated throughout its history. Not only that, by adding the idea of gender as an essential characteristic of pre-mortal identity and purpose, the family proclamation opens a can of worms on a doctrinal dispute that has been going on in the church, largely behind the scenes, for over a hundred years. And that dispute concerns the nature of intelligence. It is worth opening this particular can of worms because by going back and reviewing the development of the doctrine of intelligence, it may open to the LDS Church a way forward in the discussion of the gay marriage issue. In order to talk about the historical development of this doctrine, it might be a good idea to start off with where we are today. Generally, it is understood in the Church that there is a part of our being called intelligence which has existed forever, which God did not create. At some point, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, through the heterosexual act, created spirit bodies for our intelligence, much the same as our earthly parents, through the heterosexual act, create physical bodies for our spirit body. So what we have is intelligence existing forever, then being clothed upon with a spirit body, and then that spirit body being clothed upon with the physical body. The important thing to know about this is that Joseph Smith never taught this idea. It was a later development in the creation of Mormon theology on this point. It is common in current LDS parlance to talk about the intelligence and the spirit as if they are two different things. Joseph Smith did not treat them differently. He considered the two terms as interchangeable, and he did it not only in 1844 in the King Follett Discourse, he also did it in the Book of Abraham, Chapter 3, which appeared for the first time, published in The Times and Seasons, in 1842, two years before the King Fala Discourse. What Joseph Smith taught is that our spirits have always existed. Now you may say, wait a second, don't you mean intelligences have always existed? No, once again, Joseph Smith used those two terms interchangeably, both in Scripture in the Book of Abraham, as well as in his King Follett Discourse. Let's go to Abraham chapter 3, verse 18. Howbeit that he, God, made the greater star, so it's talking about the creation of the stars, and then it's going to liken them to spirits. Howbeit that God made the greater star, as also, if there be two spirits, and one shall be more intelligent than the other, yet these two spirits, notwithstanding one is more intelligent than the other, have no beginning. They existed before, they shall have no end, they shall exist after, for they are nolaum, or eternal. And that word nolaum, G-N-O-L-A-U-M, is a Hebrew word that means eternal. Notice here that Joseph Smith is talking about spirits 
in Abraham chapter 3, verse 18. He says, also if there be two spirits, he doesn't say intelligences, he says, also if there be two spirits, yet these two spirits have no beginning. They existed before, they shall have no end, they shall exist after, for they are no lamb or eternal. Spirits have no beginning according to the book of Abraham. Again, the book of Abraham is first published in 1842. Two years later, Joseph Smith re-emphasizes the same point in the King Follett Discourse. Here's what Joseph Smith says there. I want to reason more on the spirit of man. Notice again, he's talking about the spirit of man. For I am dwelling on the body and spirit of man. He says it again. On the subject of the dead. I take my ring from my finger and liken it unto the mind of man, the immortal part, because it has no beginning. Suppose you cut it in two. Then it has a beginning and an end, but join it again, and it continues one eternal round. So with the spirit of man. That's the third time now he's made it clear. He's talking about the spirit of man. As the Lord liveth, if it had a beginning, it will have an end. All the fools and learned and wise men from the beginning of creation who say that the spirit of man, there's the fourth time, had a beginning, prove that it must have an end. And if that doctrine is true, then the doctrine of annihilation would be true. But if I am right, I might with boldness proclaim from the housetops that God never had the power to create the spirit of man at all. God himself could not create himself. So five times in that paragraph from the King Follett Discourse, Joseph Smith makes it clear he is talking about the spirit of man. Not once does he mention the intelligence of man. It is clear that his last doctrinal word on the subject, given in April of 1844, just a couple of months before he was killed, was that there is no creation about the spirit of man. It has existed forever. And in the next sentence, Joseph Smith does use the word intelligence, but he uses it in such a way as to show that he considers it the equivalent of spirit. Here's what he says. Intelligence is eternal and exists upon a self-existent principle. It is a spirit from age to age. What is a spirit? The intelligence he's talking about. It is a spirit from age to age, and there is no creation about it. Now it might be asked, according to Joseph Smith, what is the relationship between God and these eternally existing spirits? How can he be their literal father, as most modern Mormons consider it, if indeed the spirits have been eternal? God cannot create them. They have always existed. So God cannot create the spirits in any way by a sexual act with Heavenly Mother or otherwise. Here is how Joseph Smith describes it in the King Follett Discourse. The first principles of man are self-existent with God. God himself, finding he was in the midst of spirits and glory, because he was more intelligent, saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest could have a privilege to advance like himself. So according to Joseph Smith, God is not the literal father of the spirits of mankind. Rather, he himself, like they, are self-existent, eternally existing spirits. And God, finding himself in the midst of spirits, and because he was more intelligent than the rest, saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest of the spirits could have a privilege to advance like himself. That statement in the King Follett Discourse is immediately prior to this famous statement, This is good doctrine. 
it tastes good. Notice he says this is doctrine. So Joseph Smith's doctrine is very different from the doctrine of the current LDS Church, as stated in the Family Proclamation. This is good doctrine. It tastes good. I can taste the principles of eternal life, and so can you. Well, so can you if you believe Joseph Smith over the Family Proclamation, apparently. They are given to me by the revelations of Jesus Christ. Okay, Elder Oaks, you just upped the Family Proclamation to Revelation a month ago. Joseph Smith, a few months before he died, in 1844, ups the contrary view of the proclamation to Revelation. They are given to me by the revelations of Jesus Christ, and I know that when I tell you these words of eternal life, as they are given to me, you taste them, and I know that you believe them. Now, I have to say one other thing here. We have 1842 with the publication of the Book of Abraham that teaches this doctrine. We have 1844 with the King Follett Discourse that teaches this doctrine. In the middle year between those two, 1843, the church dates the receipt to Joseph Smith of section 132. Now, section 132 does not specifically talk about God. It does not talk about how our spirits are created. What it does talk about, however, is how people on this earth will be exalted, and it will only happen through eternal marriage between man and woman, and apparently that eternal marriage is necessary for what section 132 calls the continuation of the seeds. So granting the fact that section 132 does not talk about God creating spirits by sexual union. It does talk about the future exalted inhabitants of this world creating children in some way by apparently sexual union, although that is not specifically spelled out even in section 132. What has become common is to take the statements in section 132 about the inhabitants of this earth in the future creating children and then retroactively apply that to God. In other words, if it happens to the people who become gods from this earth, that's how our God created the spirit children that have come to this earth. I know it is a minority position that exists in the church and more and more outside the church with splinter groups, especially Denver Snuffer. This idea that Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy, that he never really authored section 132, but that section 132 was something that was created by Brigham Young and attributed to Joseph Smith by Brigham Young when Joseph Smith really never wrote it in the first place. Again, I say that this is a minority position. However, this timeline of quotes from Joseph Smith seems to be an argument in favor of that position. Here's what I mean. If Joseph Smith, in 1843, received a revelation by which he understood not only would the future exalted inhabitants of this earth have spirit children through marital relations, and understood that as applying to our God and how our spirit bodies were created, why is it that Joseph Smith does not reference that in his 1844 King Follett Discourse? In other words, if Joseph Smith really received section 132 in 1843, and if he understood that to be applicable to our God and how our spirit bodies were created, why doesn't he talk about that a year later in the King Follett Discourse? It is surprisingly absent. And not only does Joseph Smith not mention it in the King Follett Discourse, he gives a view about spirits that actually contradicts that idea implicit in section 132. Not only does he not say that spirits were created by our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother through marital intimacy, he states that our spirits were not created 
at all. Now, there may be some holes to poke in that particular argument, and I'm sure that apologists would be able to come up with a few of those, but it seems to be a rather strong argument on behalf of Denver Snuffer and those who have this belief that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy, that perhaps section 132 really was not received by Joseph Smith in 1843. And as evidence for that proposition, they can point to the King Follett discourse as I have. I'm not sure if any of them have ever made this argument. I have not read that in any of their writings, but if they want to borrow it, they're welcome to it. Now, having gone off on that rabbit trail, let me come back to the point. The point is that this is what Joseph Smith taught, 1844. It is his last word on the subject. It is his most developed doctrinal pronouncement on the nature of spirits and the eternal nature of spirits and the fact that they are not created. What happens after that? Well, Brigham Young comes along. And he begins to teach something different. He teaches that spirits are created and that they are created through marital intimacy between God and one of his wives. So now he's contradicting Joseph Smith in the King Follett Discourse. Joseph Smith says spirits are not created. In fact, God cannot create them. God does not have the power to create them. They have existed forever. And now Brigham Young comes along and says, no, they are created. And in fact, they are created in this specific way. By this means, two competing theological lines of thought are created in Mormonism. They cannot both be true. Either spirits were created at some point, as per Brigham Young, or they were never created, as per Joseph Smith. Along comes B.H. Roberts. Now, what B.H. Roberts did was he sought to harmonize both of these conflicting statements. And he did it by developing the idea which is what is generally understood in the church today, that spirits and intelligences are two completely different things. This in spite of the fact that Joseph Smith in the King Follett Discourse used the two expressions interchangeably to mean the same thing as I've quoted before. So whereas Joseph Smith uses the phrase intelligence to mean the same thing as spirit and says that the intelligence or the spirit has existed forever and was never created, B.H. Roberts comes along and divides those two statements up and says intelligence is one thing and spirit is something else. The intelligence is what has existed forever. The spirit, however, was created by Heavenly Father through marital intimacy with one of his wives. The important point to note is that this is not what Joseph Smith taught, and it's actually not what Brigham Young taught either. It is a combination or a harmonization of what both taught, which ends up making what they both said correct in one way, but also makes what they both said incorrect in another way. Now, B.H. Roberts was very fond of the King Follett Discourse. He thought it was a very important doctrinal pronouncement, and he took steps to ensure that it was eventually published. And in his documentary History of the Church, he does publish it, but he adds a great deal of footnotes. And they're not only a lot of footnotes, some of them are very lengthy footnotes. And if you have a copy of the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith, who was the editor of that volume, incorporates B.H. Roberts' footnotes into the text of the King Follett Discourse. The reason for the lengthy footnotes in the King Follett Discourse is because B.H. Roberts cannot have Joseph Smith say what it is that Joseph Smith is saying. B.H. Roberts has to reinterpret what Joseph Smith is saying in order to make it line up with B.H. Roberts' new theory. For instance, footnote 7 in the King Follett Discourse. This is footnote 7 in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Quote, it appears to be very clear that the prophet had in mind the intelligence when he said the soul, the mind of man, the immortal spirit was not created or made. 
and he did not have reference to the Spirit as a begotten child of God. So, see what he did there? Even though Joseph Smith says over and over and over again, it's the Spirit that's eternal, it's the Spirit that's eternal, it's the Spirit that's eternal and not created, B.H. Roberts says, well, he may have said the Spirit, but actually he must have meant the intelligence is eternal. And he didn't mean the Spirit as a begotten child of God. Well, of course he didn't mean the Spirit as a begotten child of God, because Joseph Smith never taught that spirits are begotten of God, or that they're created by God in any way. God could not create the spirits. So you can see what B.H. Roberts is doing in the footnotes. He goes on in the same footnote to say, it was the doctrine of the prophet and is of the church that the spirits of men are begotten sons and daughters of God. That is flat out false. It was never the doctrine of Joseph Smith that the spirits of men are begotten sons and daughters of God. His doctrine was that the spirits of men have never been created and could not be created. It was the doctrine of the church through Brigham Young that the spirits of men are begotten sons and daughters of God, not the doctrine of Joseph Smith. So this is why B.H. Roberts had to add such long, lengthy, and frankly misleading footnotes to the King Follett Discourse in order to make Joseph Smith say something that Joseph Smith did not say. And the reason B.H. Roberts had to do that was because Brigham Young had popularized the idea that our spirit bodies were created by God, and that God is literally the father of our spirits, something else that Joseph Smith never said. But in this, as in other doctrines, it is important for church leaders to anchor their doctrine to Joseph Smith, even if Joseph Smith actually never said anything on the subject, and even if Joseph Smith actually contradicted it. A similar thing happened in the 1969 First Presidency Statement on Blacks in the Priesthood, where they traced this policy or this doctrine back to Joseph Smith, when Joseph Smith actually never taught it, and in fact Joseph Smith ordained or sanctioned the ordination of black men during Joseph Smith's lifetime. The 1969 First Presidency Statement says, From the beginning of this dispensation, Joseph Smith and all succeeding presidents of the church have taught that Negroes, while spirit children of a common father and the progeny of our earthly parents Adam and Eve, were not yet to receive the priesthood. So you can see that the leaders of the church were doing the same thing in 1969. Even though Joseph Smith never taught any of those things, they thought it was important to trace it back to Joseph Smith. Say Joseph Smith said it, even though he actually said the opposite, in order to make it sound like what they were proclaiming as doctrine was totally solid and anchored with Joseph Smith. The church felt compelled to say he did, in order to give their later position greater weight, just like the claim in the footnote of B.H. Roberts that Joseph Smith taught that spirits were begotten of God. Now, this idea of B.H. Roberts that the intelligence is something different than the spirit, that the intelligence had existed for eternity, but the spirit is something of a much more recent creation by God and Heavenly Mother, caught on with the church and has since been tacitly adopted as the official position of the church. But this left open another question relating to the nature of intelligence. And that question, which is largely unknown to members of the church and the debate that ensued regarding this question, is what is the nature of intelligence? Is an intelligence an individualized entity with free will, with personality, with self-awareness that has existed from eternity? Or is intelligence something that does not have self-awareness, but is sort of an amorphous blob of material from which God somehow scooped a part out, clothed it with the spirit body in order to make it something 
that now had personality and awareness and self-will. B. H. Roberts took the first view, that our intelligence that has always existed has always existed as a separate, individual, self-aware personality. But he ran into trouble with this idea with Charles W. Penrose, who was one of the counselors in the first presidency with Joseph F. Smith. Charles W. Penrose had some objections to this idea. And one of his objections was that he did not like to think of a time when God was not God. Because part of this whole theory was that the same thing applied to God, that God developed or evolved from an intelligence into who he is today. And President Penrose did not like that idea and so pushed back against it in church meetings. There were several objections that were given to B.H. Roberts' idea by President Penrose and other leaders of the church, including Elder Melvin J. Ballard. If that name sounds familiar, it is because the current apostle, M. Russell Ballard, is the grandson of Melvin J. Ballard. In fact, our current apostle, M. Russell Ballard's full name is Melvin Russell Ballard because he is named for his grandfather, as well as for his father. Which reminds me of the saying by J. Golden Kimball that leadership position in the church is 10% revelation and 90% relation. But getting back to what I was talking about, this idea of the nature of intelligence was hotly debated in the church. B.H. Roberts was on one side of the issue, President Charles Penrose was on the other side, Melvin J. Ballard was on the other side as well. And a couple of their objections to B.H. Roberts' idea was first, that if B.H. Roberts was correct, that all the intelligences that have existed forever were individual entities, then they must, by definition, be finite in their number. And that at some point, all the intelligences that have existed would obtain spirit bodies, would go through mortality, would become gods, and at some point, however far down the road, this process would cease, and the plan of salvation would no more be replicated in other worlds. In short, the work of God would come to an end, at least as understood in Mormon doctrine. That was one of their objections to it. On the other hand, looking at it from their point of view, if intelligence instead was just this big amorphous blob, which was in some way perpetually replenished, then it was possible to conceive of the plan of salvation continuing forever and never running out of this huge blob of impersonal matter called intelligence to draw from in order to make new spirits. That was one of their objections. Another one of their objections, another one of their objections was this. If B.H. Roberts was correct that all the intelligences had existed from eternity past as individual entities, how is it that God could become the most intelligent of them all? If they had been existing and progressing in some degree for eternity past, would they not all have achieved the same level of progression, and would it not have been equal with God? So Charles Penrose pushed back against B.H. Roberts. B.H. Roberts wrote a paper and submitted it to the First Presidency in which he outlined the different objections and gave his responses to them. And among the many arguments that B.H. Roberts set forth in opposition to the view held by President Charles W. Penrose was that if spirits were created by marital relations between Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, then it runs into the problem that Joseph Smith enunciated in the King Follett Discourse, that if something has a beginning, it must necessarily have an end. So B.H. Roberts said that if President Penrose was correct, that spirits had a beginning, then he has necessarily also stated that at some point they will have an end. But it should be noted that B.H. Roberts was not alone in his support of his theory. Elder Widso, also a member of the Quorum of Twelve, 
backed Elder Roberts in this idea. So there was a great deal of debate going on in the church around this issue at the beginning of the century. And it may be that Elder Talmadge also supported B.H. Roberts' idea, and that may be why it is that he wrote what he did in 1912 in the Young Women's Journal in the midst of the discussion of this issue. And yet, ultimately, it was the other view that won out, the one that was not proposed by B.H. Roberts, the one that was backed by Charles Penrose, at least with those general authorities who ever mentioned the issue at all although it should be noted that Hugh B. Brown favored B.H. Roberts' position. On the other hand, more recently, Elder Bruce R. McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith were against it. And so was Spencer Kimball, apparently. Now, interestingly, in the women's session of General Conference from this past General Conference, October of 2017, Joy Jones, the president of the Relief Society, quotes Spencer W. Kimball in another context, but it contains his views on this issue. Here is her quote from President Spencer W. Kimball, quote, God is your father. He loves you. He and your mother in heaven value you beyond any measure. You are unique, one of a kind. And this is the part that she's quoting Spencer Kimball for, but it also includes this last part of the sentence. You are unique, one of a kind, made of the eternal intelligence which gives you claim upon eternal life. Notice what President Kimball says here. He does not say that you are an eternal intelligence. Instead, he says you are made of the eternal intelligence, which gives you claim upon eternal life. So by that quote, Spencer Kimball indicates that he was of the position, contrary to B.H. Roberts, that he did not think that we were individualized intelligences from eternity, but rather there was this mass, this amorphous, depersonalized mass of material called intelligence from which we were scooped and then created into a spirit. Once again, he says, you are one of a kind made of the eternal intelligence. Now, in some sense, the debate about the nature of intelligence is separate and distinct from the issue of whether that intelligence or whether spirit has gender as stated in the Proclamation on the Family. And yet, obviously, if intelligence is just an amorphous, depersonalized mass, there is no way in which gender could be an essential attribute of our pre-mortal identity, at least not if we extend it back to the point at which we were intelligence. And to the extent that it does, what does it mean to have this statement in the Proclamation on the Family? This statement that apparently represents one side of this issue, and apparently the losing side. And to have this statement be quoted or referenced as doctrine in the Family Proclamation, does this mean that the minority position in the LDS Church on this issue, wins out after all. Regardless of those questions, what is clear is that neither side of the debate could be considered doctrine. In fact, in 1936, Elder Joseph Fielding Smith, although he had his feelings on one side of the issue, gave a caution about this subject. What he wrote in his book, Progress of Man, published in 1936, was this, quote, Some of our writers have endeavored to explain what an intelligence is. But to do so is futile, for we have never been given any insight into this matter beyond what the Lord has fragmentarily revealed. We know, however, that there is something called intelligence, which always existed. It is the real, eternal part of man, which was not created or made. 
This intelligence, combined with the spirit, constitutes a spiritual identity or individual. So notice how, notice how Joseph Fielding Smith has it both ways. First off, he says, look, you really shouldn't be trying to write about this or explore it because really all we have is some fragmentary revelations from God and nothing beyond it. But after saying that, he goes on in the same paragraph to present his side of the issue, which is that an intelligence does not become a spiritual identity or individual until it is clothed upon with spirit. Once again, he says, we know, however, that there is something called intelligence, which always existed. It is the real eternal part of man, which was not created or made, and then this last sentence, where he gives away the farm and shows where he really stands. This intelligence, combined with the spirit, constitutes a spiritual identity or individual. Obviously, he's saying the converse, that before it's combined with the spirit, the intelligence does not constitute a spiritual identity or individual. This is classic Joseph Fielding Smith. To, on the one hand, caution people not to come to any conclusions, because we really don't know enough about it, but then to say... My conclusion is correct anyway. And notice what has been going on here during this entire discussion among the general authorities of the church about this one issue. At no point do any of them say, hey, I'm a prophet, I'm a seer, I'm a revelator, I'll go ask God and see what God has to say about this issue. At no point do they say that. Instead, they act like people who have no access to revelation and what they're trying to do is piece together what came through Joseph Smith, either the revelations or his statements, and try and understand what it is that they can make out of it and which position they come down on. So even though the leaders of the church are having this disagreement about the nature of intelligence, at no point does anybody go to God for revelation. At no point does anybody even suggest going to God for revelation. It appears for all intents and purposes that they completely understand they don't even have the ability to go to God for revelation on the subject. All they are is caretakers and curators and synthesizers of the revelations given to Joseph Smith. They have no access to revelation themselves to resolve any questions that arise because of conflicts of opinion among the leaders of the church about what those revelations given to Joseph Smith actually mean. And so, going back to Joseph Fielding Smith's statement, if it is futile to try to talk about what constitutes an intelligence, because we have not been given any insight into the matter beyond what the Lord has fragmentarily revealed, how can this statement that now appears in the family proclamation possibly be considered a doctrine as to gender being an essential characteristic of pre-mortal identity and purpose? Again, the leaders of the church are making doctrine out of nothing at all. Now, even though I've spent some time opening this can of worms and examining a number of the worms in the can, there is method in my madness. If we go back to Joseph Smith's last statement on the subject and conclude that really he meant what he said and that our spirits have no creation about them, what we could then do as a church is get rid of the idea that spirits are created by sexual congress between God and his wife. This is something that has never been revealed in the scriptures, and in fact, Joseph Smith's last pronouncement on the subject in the King Follett Discourse contradicts the idea. And not only does it contradict Joseph Smith, it contradicts common sense. How many billions of people, that's billions with a B, are on the earth today? How many billions have existed on the earth prior to today? How many billions are going to exist after today? And yet Mormon doctrine teaches us that all of those spirits were created 
by sexual relations between Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. And in Mormonism, not only do we have to account for the creation of all the spirits of those who have lived on this earth, we also have to account for an extra one-third of the spirits who never came to this earth, but followed Satan in the pre-mortal existence and were cast out of heaven, never to receive a body. So that means that if you take all the billions of people who ever live on this earth, you have to multiply that amount by 50% and then add it on top to come up with a total number of spirits that Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother had to procreate in the pre-mortal existence. For example, if the total number of people to ever be born on this earth were 10 billion, you would have to multiply that number by 50% to come up with 5 billion more, added on top for 15 billion to account for all the spirits that had to be procreated between Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother in the pre-mortal existence. If you have the idea of polygamy, involved and Heavenly Father has many wives, it's still going to take a pretty long time to create all the spirits that are going to come to this earth. And God better not have anything else to do or have anything else on his sexual, excuse me, his social, okay. not his sexual calendar, his social calendar. Sorry about that. And God better not have anything else to do or anything else on his social calendar because he is going to be spending millions and millions of years, non-stop, round the clock, 24-7, having sex with his wives in order to create the spirit children that are going to come to this planet. It is simply ridiculous when you come to think of it. And to the extent that the LDS Church has moved away from polygamy and is now focusing on monogamy, if Heavenly Father has only one wife, then it's going to take him that much longer to create all the spirits that have to come to this earth. So not only does the modern Mormon idea instituted through Brigham Young that spirit bodies are created by sexual relations between our heavenly parents contradict Joseph Smith, it also contradicts basic notions of common sense. Another problem with this idea is that it seems to contradict the fundamental tenet in scripture that like begets like as described in the creation accounts. Different kinds of creatures create or procreate after their own kind. Well, what about God and Heavenly Mother? They are supposed to be resurrected beings with bodies of flesh and bone. Why would it be that resurrected beings with bodies of flesh and bone would have sexual relations and create spirits and not children with bodies of flesh and bone? That is a wrinkle in Mormon theology that also militates against the idea that this is really how spirits are created. I bring all this up to say that if we got back to Joseph Smith, if we as a church went back to what Joseph Smith said in the Book of Abraham and the King Follett Discourse and did away with the idea that spirits are created through marital intimacy, a heterosexual act occurring between the gods, then perhaps, perhaps we could finally open the door to allowing homosexuals into the church and allow them to express themselves sexually within legal and lawful marriage. Because it is clear and has been for some time that the reason that the church cannot give way to the idea of homosexual marriage is because of their belief that the heterosexual sex act is the basis not only of the Mormon plan of salvation, but of the Mormon concept of exaltation. And if the LDS church could go back to what Joseph Smith said, that spirits are eternal and there is no creation about them, the objection to accepting homosexuals in the church in legal and lawful marriages 
would evaporate. I say this to the leaders of the church, that this is an idea you should seriously consider. It is founded in the revelations and words of Joseph Smith, and if you were to simply adopt those words as your gospel, instead of the elaborations and contradictions of those words that have developed in the church since Joseph Smith's death, the way would be clear for you to not only embrace the homosexual community into the church, but also to open the doors of exaltation to them. Because if exaltation is not dependent upon the heterosexual sex act to create spirit bodies to continue the plan of salvation on other worlds, homosexuals can do it just as well, if not better. But until that day comes, it looks like we're stuck with the family proclamation, which is now revelation according to Elder Oaks, and because of that pronouncement by Elder Oaks, it will probably be with us for some time to come. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.